Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I've got uh, quite a show for you today. I'm looking forward to getting it started with Dr. Uh, Laurel Shaler, uh, because I think all of us have had, you know, blind spots. We have blind spots, right? So we all admit to that. No problem. And But blind spots can be maybe bad relational habits that keep us from really enjoying our relationships fully. Maybe, you know, we're a little too judgmental or maybe we're a little envious how a friend has been blessed because we're struggling. Uh, maybe you're even a little insecure, heaven forbid. And maybe we're questioning uh, every m- movement a friend makes or and, and we're hoping that we're going to still be loved. So that might need a relational reset. And that's the title of her book. It's called Relational Reset Unlearning the Habits That Hold You Back. Dr. Laurel uh, Shaler is my guest, and she is a uh, uh, professor and author, and really glad to meet her for the first time. Laurel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to meet you. Yeah, you've got quite impressive credentials. I didn't read them all, but you've got a whole bunch of them, and uh, you you paid attention in school, didn't you? <laughs> well, a little bit, especially as I kept going and realized <laughs> I was going to have to pay even more attention if I wanted to keep going to the next level. Yeah. Well, I really am intrigued with your book, so thank you for uh, doing the show. Uh, let's talk about relational reset. Maybe you can start by sharing what are some of the indicators that a person is in need of one. Yeah, definitely. So I would say that anyone who has a strained or even a broken relationship, maybe they're tired of struggling because of relationship difficulties. Maybe, as you noted, they feel insecure, or maybe they're easily offended, constantly afraid of rejection. Or maybe they're having a difficult time communicating with others. Perhaps they constantly feel misunderstood or defensive. Those are all signs that someone might be in need of a relational reset. But I really think we can all use some help from time to time with a relationship. Mm -hmm. I would agree. No, I I mentioned briefly the insecurity, and you've already pointed that out. So if if you deal with insecurity, how do you silence that? Well, I think insecurity is one of the main reasons why we don't address conflict. Uh, We are concerned that we might lose that relationship or that something negative could happen, that it's going to make it worse if we try to address it. Maybe we don't believe that we're a strong enough person to even handle it or we're concerned the other person might become aggressive or or even passive aggressive when we're trying to, um, you know, address some kind of conflict that we might have between the two of us. So I think with insecurity, one of the the most important things that we can do is we can remind ourselves who we really are. You know, society talks a lot about self-esteem, but I think it's more important that we look at self-worth because our self-esteem is going to change based on, you know, whether or not we got a good night's sleep last night or had enough coffee today. Mm -hmm. But our self-worth is who we identify ourselves as being at the core So I think that's a really important thing that we have to do in order to improve our self-worth and improve our security. Laurel, my answers to those last two questions are yes and no. Yes, I got a good night's sleep. No, I have not had enough coffee today, (laughs) just so you know. 
Uh, but, I understand. I mean, our our identity in Christ is really where our self worth should come from, because the self esteem that comes and goes. I mean, that's that's fickle. Absolutely, it's very temperamental. It it, it changes very quickly. <laughs> but if we can know for sure and stand on the promise of the Word of God that um, we are His, then and that you know we we are loved by Him, we're made in His image. If we can just stake our claim in that truth, then that's going to go a long way in helping us to feel secure. Mm-hmm. I know this is going to sound uh, a little nuts, but when your when your when your feelings have been crushed, and we talk about God loves you and everything, which He does, and but sometimes it's hard to move that to the forefront of your mind. Yes, it can be because yeah. we can get stuck. Right, we get right. stuck in this idea that no, we're unlovable, we're not worthy, no one cares about us, and we kind of have a little pity party. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we know if our expectations are realistic in a relationship? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that everyone with whom we're in a relationship will at some point disappoint us. If we've been in a relationship with them long enough, whatever it looks like, a romantic relationship, parent-child neighbors, church member, whatever, we're going to have, we're going to disappoint, experience disappointment. They're going to disappoint us and we're going to disappoint them. So Mm -hmm. I think we have to recognize that uh, we can't expect too much of other people. We can't expect them to be perfect or put them on pedestals. Um, we, We can expect healthy boundaries, respect, love, but definitely not perfection. So I think that's something that we have to keep in mind. Um, and also, I think we need to consider that we want to grow more Christ-like as our relationship with Him deepens. So we can't browbeat other people into meeting our expectations. We can't convict them. We're not their Holy Spirit. Uh, we can share our preferences with them, but we can't make them change. So I, I think, again, setting boundaries, maintaining reasonable expectations is helpful and healthy but it's not helpful to decide that because the person isn't who you want them to be, then they're not a worthy person and they're just a disappointment. Mm-hmm. Dr. Laurel Sheeler is my guest. She's written a book called Relational Reset, Unlearning the Habits That Hold You Back. Uh, Laurel, how do we uh, put a spin or reframe or maybe redeem is a better word, uh, some of the disappointments we experience in life? Yeah, so that's so important for us to consider. How we handle disappointment Mm -hmm. really will dictate how our relationships falter or flourish as a result. So if we're disappointed in someone, we can reframe that experience in an honest way. So it's not about lying to ourselves or trying to convince us that we're not disappointed, but to think about maybe the positive in the circumstance. Uh, one example that, I, that I've thought of is, you know, if you've been overlooked for a promotion or a special role at work, maybe that gives you an opportunity to have time to do something else, or maybe there's a better opportunity for you down the road. So I think not just looking at the negative in that disappointment, but also reframing that to how the Lord might redeem that for you in the future. I love that. That's speaking truth to yourself and saying, this is, um, I've got, I'm under the Lord's sovereign control and this didn't work out like I thought, but there must be something different that he's preparing me for. Yeah. And and taking the time to grieve, like this isn't, it's not to minimize the disappointment Mm -hmm. or the loss. We can still grieve it, but then to be able to, to, continue moving forward, pressing on, as Paul talked about. Yeah, I love that. Laurel, what is uh, the root cause of not addressing relational conflict? 
Well, I think the root cause of not addressing relational conflict lots of times goes back to that insecurity, but just fear. We're, we're just afraid in relationships. Um, maybe we find that we have to constantly walk on eggshells around someone or we're just not sure how they're going to react to something. Um, Sometimes it's because they're a part of a bigger group, like maybe it's a member of our family or our church or, again, our workplace, and we don't want to upset the apple cart. Um, Or maybe we just we love them and we don't want to lose the relationship, so we just kind of take whatever the conflict is and you know, maybe mm-hmm. there are times when we have to be willing to be assertive and to stand up for ourselves and, and express our, our needs and our desires, um, again, without expecting the other person is automatically going to change for us. But at least we can talk with them about what our preferences are. And I think we have to work through that fear. Mm-hmm. Laurel, Laurel, when you talk about afraid to lose, I always think of the promise that God makes, that I will never leave you or forsake you. So it seems kind of natural that the liar you know the guy I'm talking about, he'll say mm-hmm. the opposite. You'll end up alone. You'll end up by yourself. No one will want to be with you. That's right. That is definitely a lie from Satan. Totally. Um, he just tries to convince us. And, you know, he he is the, the author of all lies, the father of lies, and he is going to try and convince us um, that if we, that we just should succumb to our fear um, and not trust what God has promised us. Mm-hmm. Laurel, how would how do you stay emotionally healthy when you're in the middle of a messy uh, relationship? Well, I think one one something that's really important is to surround ourselves with people with whom we do have a solid relationship. Sometimes we concern ourselves more with what's not going well in our lives than focusing on what is going well, and we start to allow it to consume us. So maybe there's someone that we're we're upset with um, and we're like obsessively checking our email or our text messages to see if the person has contacted us Mm -hmm. and that results in us losing focus on the positives in our lives we become anxious overwhelmed stressed out Uh, but I think it's important for us to surround ourselves with people that we do have a solid relationship with and especially those that can point us back to the Lord point us back to the Word of God Um, we need to be seeking godly counsel and sometimes you know we might need to meet with a pastor or even a professional counselor in order to help us work through those those tough emotions that we're struggling with. Laurel, if you are in a messy relationship, is there a good chance that both people in, involved are emotionally unhealthy to some degree, though? Well, I think if you're in a messy relationship, it, there's there's something going on. Now, sometimes it might be that you know, we want to blame the other person, but as hard as it is, a, a lot of what I try and talk about is how we can take ownership over our own stuff. So I'm going to, you know, try and hold up a mirror to myself and, and do some self-reflection and, and to determine what's going on for me um, that, you know, what role am I playing in the midst of this relationship? You know, if there's a lot of conflict, chronic conflict in the relationship, what am I doing? Now, that doesn't mean that I have to take responsibility for the other person or for everything going on, but owning my own portion and then being able to separate that out from what the other person might be contributing. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about fixers. Uh, Maybe you've got some advice for people who are fixers. We only have about 90 seconds before we go to break, but I I, will pick it up at the other side if we have more to talk about. But Um, I know a lot of men in particular want to just fix stuff. Oh, yeah, and I've done my fair share of trying to fix people, too. I know (laughs) lots of counselors, social workers. You're a licensed counselor, Laurel. You should be fixing people. (laughs) 
Well, I want to help guide them in, 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 into um, allowing the Lord to, to work work on them. Um, but we do try and fix people in situations, and we have to wrestle against that knowing that ultimately we really can't fix anyone. We can try and help them when it's appropriate, but it's really not our job to fix them. And if we try and do that, they might become resentful of us or upset with us, and that's really not worth the risk to the relationship. Mm-hmm. Dr. Laurel Shaler is my guest. Her book is Relational Reset, Unlearning the Habits That Hold You Back. When we come back from a break, I'm going to ask her this question. What is the miracle question that you have asked lots of clients in an effort to help them dispel the past? That and lots more when we come back. Back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Laurel Shaler as my guest. She's written a book called Relational Reset, Unlearning the Habits that Hold You Back. She has a miracle question that she's asked all uh, lots of clients in an effort to help them dispel their past. I'm very curious as to what that miracle question is, Laurel. Well, I wish I could take credit for developing it, but it actually comes from a a type of therapy called solution-focused brief therapy. It was developed by a married couple named Steve DeShazer and Insu Kimberg, and there's lots of variations, but it goes a little something like this. Imagine that while you're asleep tonight, you're given a miracle, and when you wake up, your life is exactly what you would like it to be. How would you know you have received a miracle? And so I've asked this question many times over, and what's remarkable is that not one client has answered with something outlandish. Nobody said they want to be a billionaire or they want to move to a deserted island and and be alone. Instead, every single answer was reasonable and realistic. And what it allowed them to do, yeah, it's really, it's remarkable. It allowed them to prioritize their lives and to set goals focused in the present rather than focusing on the past. It really does help you to focus on the future, to move forward. Again, I I have to go back to pressing on towards the prize that, that, that God has called us to. Um, we have to press on towards what's ahead. That doesn't mean we're never going to address the past or uh, process the past or deal with or cope with the past, but that we really can come to a point to where we are centered in what God has for us today and for the, all of the days that he has ordained for us here on, on earth. Mm, that's so interesting. I probably would have gone with the eccentric billionaire guy, <laughs> you know, so I could be like yeah. an European aristocrat or something. But anyway. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about uh, being offended, and people get offended. It seems like more so than ever, we're getting more easily offended, and our our guard is up. And you know how can how can we uh, um, how do we know if we're just one of those people that are just so easily offended? Well, I think if we have our feelings hurt easily or frequently, or other people tell us that they have to walk on eggshells around us or maybe we constantly expect others to apologize and we just kind of wait on an apology before we um, are able to reconcile with someone. I think that that is a sign that we're easily offended. And, and we do live in an age where many people are easily offended, but this really has more to do with our own personal relationship. 
Um, so if we are finding that we are so often offended, that's something that we have to check in our own hearts and spirits um, to explore why am I allowing everything to get to me? I have a good friend who um, says that we need our Q-tips, and the Q-tip stands for quit taking it personally, <laughs> and I think that's something helpful. I like that. I like that a lot. What about uh, developing empathy uh, towards people who have hurt us? That's yeah, so not always easy. Is, it's not always easy, and it's often confused with sympathy. So it's it's not about feeling sorry for someone, but it's more about identifying with them, putting ourselves in their shoes, reflecting on what it might be like to be that person and why they may act the way that they act. Uh, I think that that can be helpful for us when we are able to think about what would it really be like to be this other person. Um, it helps us to understand why they may have made the choices that they made. And sometimes it allows us to um, not feel so angry or hurt or offended or upset or disappointed by what they've done or said. Mm-hmm. Laurel, can we change uh, parts, the parts of our personality? Well, that's a good question. There's, there's two kinds of personality characteristics. There's trait personality characteristics, and those are, are the ones that we're born with. Okay. Those are God-given traits. And then there are state personality characteristics, and those are the ones that are temporary. So maybe someone's go-to emotion is anger. Is this something they're born with, or is it something that they've developed over time? More likely than not, it's a habit that they've developed. So if this is a habit that they've developed, then it's something that can be changed or replaced with a different reaction or emotion. Uh, specifically with anger, it's often used as a mask for other emotions. So God has given us the ability to get angry, but we're not born angry. That's not a trait personality characteristic. That's something that we experience based on other circumstances, and we can learn to, to change that reaction. Mm-hmm. What if you have a hard time letting something go? I, I know I struggle with that on occasion. I have a hard time letting stuff go, maybe because I don't uh, feel like I have in my heart uh, a full understanding, so I remain a little confused and trouble letting it go. So maybe you could coach me on how to let stuff go. Yeah, I think one tip for letting things go is, and every time I hear that expression, I think of the song from Frozen, you know, the Let It Go song um, <laughs> that my daughter, five-year-old daughter, has has sung over and over. But one tip for letting things go is, is trying to determine how long this issue is going to matter. Um, is this a, a major issue that's going to matter the rest of my life or uh, years from now? Or is this something so minor that it's probably not even going to come to my mind tomorrow or next week? So if it's minor, it's better to let it go because if it's if it's bigger, then we have to look at you know forgiveness and reconciliation and whether or not that's possible. Um, you know, we are commanded to forgive. You know, the scripture is clear on that. I think about the discussion between Peter and Jesus in Matthew 18 when Peter asked how many times he should forgive his brother when he sins against him. And Jesus says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And the real message there is that we just have to keep forgiving. My pastor says, stop counting, keep forgiving. And that's much easier said than done, but that's what we're called to do. But there's a difference between that decision to forgive, decisional forgiveness, and the emotional forgiveness when we actually feel like we have forgiven the other person. And what we do in between those two things can make a big difference in how um, how we wind up feeling about ourselves and other people. Mm-hmm. Dr. Laurel Shaler is my guest, and she's written a book called Relational Reset on learning the habits that uh, hold you back. 
And Laurel, why is it so important and maybe even critical to be able to uh, talk straight to someone? Well, really being aggressive, passive, passive aggressive, those won't get you very far in a relationship. But when we're assertive, you know, clear, assertive communication, that's what's best. That's when we can describe a problem behavior, describe how we're impacted that behavior, and share what we would prefer in the future. So talking straight means being aware of how powerful our words are and using them to build up instead of tear down. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we confuse assertiveness with aggression, and we think that if we stand up for ourselves and that's being aggressive, but so much of this has to do with our tone, with our with our body language, and with the words that we choose to speak. Mm-hmm. When you're talking about uh, building others up, not tearing down, I was just thinking, too, I don't know where this thought came from, uh, but sometimes when we are in prayer groups or small groups in church or we sometimes share gossip as prayer requests, uh, talk about why this is probably not a good idea. Yeah, and I think we've probably all been there where we're hearing something shared (laughs) as a prayer request, and really um, the intention behind what's being shared is is not kind. It's not really about prayer. So the real issue here is the heart. Uh, so when we gossip about others, we not only run the risk of negatively impacting our relationship with the ones we're talking about, but also with the ones we're talking to. So we have to be mindful that that can be harmful for relationships in all different directions. Mm-hmm. Then how do we, uh, Laurel, stop blaming others and, and take responsibility for our lives? Well, I love um, a quote by Cloud and Townsend. They wrote um, the Boundary Series, Mm -hmm. and they said, blamers have a character problem. Uh, No one wants to be around someone who always blames others for every issue in their life. Um, But if we're able to acknowledge when we're wrong, if we can speak up and say, I'm sorry, this was my fault, um, even when we're not totally to blame, we can at least ask ourselves about our level of responsibility and own up to that. Um, that can go a long way in um, building up a relationship. Mm-hmm. Laura, we just have a couple of minutes left, but when I think of fear of inadequacy or abandonment or rejection, how can we fight against these? Yeah, and we, we talked some about this, and, and it really goes back to that issue of fear and fear being a mm-hmm. liar. It tells us not to bother. Um, it tells us that other people are going to reject us, they're going to leave us. Uh, when we're not securely attached to others, we live in a state of constant concern about our relationship. And the only thing that we can do, the best thing we can do, is to work towards secure attachment, first to God, our Creator, and then to others. It takes being honest with ourselves. We have to be realistic about what's going on. Um, but if we if we take a step back and we evaluate uh, the actual reality of whether or not our fears are validated, oftentimes we find that there's no support for our fears. Um, I, I guess Roosevelt was right when he said we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Mm-hmm. Laura, you've been a delight to have on the show. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. I've just uh, really enjoyed meeting you, and your book is really good, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you very much. Dr. Laurel Shaler has been the guest, and her book is called Relational Reset, Unlearning the Habits That Hold You Back. We'll take a short break and be right back with lots more. It's the 
Welcome back. I'm always uh, happy and joyful, and I'll even say the word blessed when I get to study God's Word with my friends. And Greg, uh, Dr. Greg Heddington is my guest today as we're going to continue our study in First Peter. We're in chapter 3 today and looking forward to uh, continuing our study. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Well, welcome to the seventh lesson in our study of First Peter as we continue the two main themes of Peter's letters, which are righteous living and suffering righteously. And today we'll look at First Peter 3, verse 13, to chapter 4, verse 6. Awesome. And you may want to read it if you haven't read it recently. So before we broach those two subjects, I think we can never talk too much about God's love for us, because I've talked to many believers who say, when they're honest, that they are anxious because, if you're taking notes, Roman number one, I don't think I love God enough. <clears throat> Do you ever feel that way? Well, in other words, they don't think they're doing enough to please God. There's a character in Greek mythology named Sisyphus who is punished by the gods and sent to Tartarus, which is the name the Greeks used for hell, and he's forced to roll a stone to the top of a hill, and each time he nears the top and about to accomplish the task, the stone rolls back to the bottom. So he's destined to do this over and over for eternity. Now, that myth has become a metaphor for people who feel like they're spending their time attempting to accomplish a task, but just when they're about to complete it, something occurs, and they must start all over again. For some believers, that task is attempting to please God, but they never feel like they are able to do enough for God. It's a constant source of low-grade suffering because they're sincere about living for Jesus. Now, there's only one response to this kind of hopeless thinking, because I believe that most of the time, instead of us needing a kick in the pants spiritually, what we need is number two, Roman numeral two, God's love for us. The problem is we don't understand and feel how much God loves us. Because if we really understood and felt how much God loves us, and he's already demonstrated that love through the life of Jesus, then we cannot help but love him back. Then it doesn't become a burden for us to love him. We naturally love someone who loves us so much and proven it, not in words, but, but in action on the cross. Now remember, it's the enemy. It's our enemy, Satan, who wants us to think that loving God is a burden. So when we let God love us and we love him back, that is what we call worship. And worship is achieved in many ways, not just singing praises. For example, we worship him when we simply do what he wants us to do, like treating others as we would want to be treated, standing up for justice for the least, the lost, and the lonely, those who cannot speak for themselves. That's also worship, and we'll talk about worship uh, in a few more minutes, but let's just remember, we'll never do it perfectly, and that's why we depend on the Lord. He looks at our heart, our motivation, as we try to do our best, as we ask for forgiveness when we fail, but we keep at it through the power of the Holy Spirit. As the 12 steps says, keep on working because it works and it won't if you don't. And it's a joy because God loves us and he is on our side. He's already proven that he's full of grace, so why would we not desire to try to accomplish 
what God asks us to do. We were created for God's pleasure. In other words, he made us in order to love us. If God had not wanted to love us, we would not exist. He thought us up and he formed us in our mother's womb, and there is no place that this message does not need to be heard because we all need to know our destiny and God's love and his purpose for our life. And once we know our purpose, then we live it. Others see it, and we share it with others. I'll just say amen to myself on that one. Yeah, I'll say it too. All right. Roman numeral three, retire or refire. When someone's older and retired, and I know a lot of guys like that, and they want to know what to do now with their lives, well, it's clear. They refire. They begin to mentor, in my opinion, younger people, but not by talking about religion, rather about talking about relationship. Now, religion, relationship, and model for the young people what that looks like. Someone might say, well, how do I mentor? The answer is, you just spend time with people, and they see how you do life, not just because you're a nice person, but because you've been transformed by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. By the way, and I couldn't believe it when I saw this report, a recent Barna survey reported that over 50% of Bible-believing Christ followers in the U.S. either don't know or don't believe that the Holy Spirit is real. Now, that's astonishing because we are Trinitarians, and Jesus left this planet, so the Holy Spirit, which is called the paraclete in Greek, which literally means one who comes alongside of us, which I love, Jesus left this planet to be with the Father in order to tag-team the Holy Spirit to come and then be a part of us as the third part of the Trinity would come alongside all believers. So back to the subject. Mentoring someone is more about what is caught rather than what's verbally taught. In other words, we always learn more by seeing the example of godly behavior rather than hearing about it and how we're supposed to live. Now, we're dealing with some big issues in these lessons, so let's look at this one. What is our purpose in life? I mean, why not just get to the bottom line of what the big questions are? There's probably a lot of ways to say it, but I see five purposes. So if you're taking notes, again, Roman numeral four, the five basic purposes in life. According to Scripture, the first purpose, number one, is knowing Christ, and we respond to him by worshiping him. The second purpose is loving Christ, and we respond by having fellowship with him. The third purpose is growing in Christ, and our response is discipleship. Our fourth purpose is serving Christ, and our response is to do ministry. And our fifth purpose is sharing Christ. We do this with evangelism. In other words, we we're sharing our faith. And I like the way 1 Peter 3.15 says it this way. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Now, there are numerous verses to support these five purposes. And notice how each of these five purposes transition into the next one. In other words, when we know Christ purpose number one, and what he's done for us, then we love him, purpose number two. When we love him, we want to 
grow in Christ, purpose number three. When we grow in Christ, it means we serve him and others, and that's purpose number four. As we experience joy because there's nothing more rewarding than serving others, and I've learned this mostly in marriage, when we serve Christ in our lives and in ministries, we naturally want to share Christ, and that's purpose number five. Those are the five basic purposes in righteous living. Now, today, there is a second that we want to talk about, Roman numeral five, question since god loves us so much why do we what is we have to suffer though he loves us why do we have to suffer good question first of all jesus promises we will have problems as he says in john 16:33 when he says in this world you will have tribulation now in scripture speaks of suffering sometimes it refers to standing up specifically for our faith But much of the time, suffering refers to just general pain and adversity and tribulation. Well, why does God allow that, especially for believers? God uses suffering, pain, and problems to grow all five of those purposes in our life. Suffering is simply necessary. So here's a question. If I asked you, when have your times of worship been the closest with the Lord, The answer often is, when I was in pain, when I felt misunderstood, when I was being criticized, when finances were not going well, when I felt alone, when I had a physical problem, or there was a death of a friend or a family member. Friends, whatever it is, those are the difficult times that are often our deepest times of worship, ironically. As C.S. Lewis says, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone, and God may be using pain to get our attention when we go off the rails. God uses pain to deepen our worship, and again, don't think of worship just in terms of singing. Because knowing Christ, which is our number one purpose, is about worshiping Him. So how might we, therefore, define worship? Well, Scripture confirms, Roman numeral 6, worship is whatever we do to honor the Lord. Martin Luther once famously said, A woman washing clothes with the joy of Christ in her heart is more worshipful than ten monks praying in a monastery. Well, Luther did sometimes use hyperbole to make his point, but I think we understand his meaning that if we have a godly motivation, all that we do All that we can do is worship. Colossians 3.17 says this, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. Another verse, which is one of the most powerful in all of Scripture for me, is Micah 6, verse 8, when the prophet asks, What does the Lord require of you? And here's the answer. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your Lord. Well, it's great to hear these things, but I just recently heard a true story about how these things work together. So, Roman numeral 7, living out Micah 6-8. Last week, I was talking to a friend of mine named Thad about the OU Texas football game he took his son to when uh, last year. 
as his name was Elijah. The game, as always, was at the Cotton Bowl, and Thad and Elijah were there to root for the University of Texas. Four minutes into the game, Texas was already up 14 to nothing, and the Longhand Horn fans were whooping it up. In the row just below Thad, and three seats to the right, there was a man, possibly in his mid-60s, who began to yell and curse at another man who was wearing an OU T-shirt several sections to the left. So he was facing Thad when he was yelling. Well, since Texas was playing so well and there was just one OU fan in in the whole area, Thad figured the yelling would stop pretty soon. But it only got worse and worse and more and more coarse. The man started using the F word. It went on and on, but nobody said anything to him, although he was clearly bothering everyone. Have you ever had that experience? What do you do? Most people don't want to take the chance of possibly making things worse by saying something to the man and then being embarrassed that the man ignores or insults him. After all, he was drunk, and that could make things even more dangerous. Well, the man continued, loudly cursing and yelling just a few yards away from Thad and his son until Thad had had enough and calmly said to the man, Excuse me, sir, but I'm a Texas fan, too, and can you stop cursing? I'm here with my 12-year-old son. The man replied, Well, you brought him to the wrong game. And Thad calmly replied, This is a public event, and my 12-year-old son is with me, and if you don't stop yelling, I'm going to have to call the security, and they'll ask you to leave. The man said, go ahead, call security. And again, Thad said, look, I'm a Texas fan, too. Why don't you just yell these things in your living room at home? Why are you yelling them here at the game in front of everybody else when the game is over there and you're yelling at a man down there? Well, finally, the man calmed down by the end of the quarter. But after the incident, no one around Thad said anything like, thank you. But what's even more disturbing, there was a He discovered that the people who were sitting next to the man were his friends, and they had said nothing to their friend. Well, Thad also said there was another man with a 15-year-old son. He said nothing. Didn't even think that. Well, Bill, it's an interesting story, and I want to finish it after the break. Wow. You've you've learned how to do what's called in radio the cliffhanger. (laughs) Because I don't know if this is going to be tough, but we will take a break. Dr. Greg Heddington is uh, my guest. We're continuing our study in First Peter, and we'll be right back. back with my friend and Bible teacher, Dr. Greg Heddington, and he's done enough radio with me now that he's uh, discovered how to build in his own cliffhanger, and boy, he did a great (laughs) job. I'm dying to find out what happened to to Thad. Well, thanks, Bill. Yeah, I've given an example of a friend of mine, Thad, who's at a public place, a a football game, and trying to have a man be civil toward other people, Mm -hmm. and just nothing happened. And uh, again, what was amazing to me was... uh, Nobody said, hey, thanks. Thanks for doing that. It was driving us crazy. But, you know, we have a fear of doing that. We don't want to look silly. We don't want to be embarrassed. We're looking at intimidating people. But what about other things? When people are making cruel comments or crude statements or jokes or gossiping about somebody else. I mean, do we do anything at all? Well, it's a good question. Do we? Mm-hmm. Now, my point is the first purpose in life is to know Christ and we respond by worshiping him. 
and defining worship is giving honor to Christ by actively standing for justice for all people, especially those who um, cannot take care of themselves, who are the, who are the powerless. We suffer with those who suffer. Who wants suffering? Well, I, for one, choose not to have suffering, but that's not possible. Jesus tells his disciples in Mark 10, because you have left all you have for my sake, you will be rewarded and you will be persecuted. Now, in other words, blessings will be mixed with suffering. Now, later in Mark 10, 44, Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. Then the next verse in 1045, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, I did not hear that message when I was young. Uh, did you hear that message when you first came to know the Lord? Mm-mm. I mean, I had a two-for-one day at 13. I joined the church and <laughs> publicly stated I was committing to Jesus on the same day. It was a big day. Yeah. So why did I commit to Jesus? Well, my mother said I should. She said that was a pretty good idea and a very important thing to do. So starting off, I did it because my mother says it was important. It's a bit overwhelming to comprehend the whole gospel message when you're just starting off your walk. We grow into the reality just like we do in marriage. God deepens our worship through pain, and then we have a better idea of what Scripture means when we look at our first purpose and we say to know and to, and to worship Christ. Jesus is our example, which means we suffer sometimes when we follow him. That's similar to the way first century Jewish disciples would closely follow whatever they saw their rabbis do because they wanted to be like their rabbi. One of the best examples is in Matthew 14 when Jesus is walking on the Lake of Galilee and Peter says, Lord, tell me to come into the water with you. And Jesus says, well, come on. Peter, wanting to be like his rabbi, of course, jumps in the water and doesn't last too long on the surface. But our scripture this week in 1 Peter 4.1 tells us that when the early disciples endured suffering for their rabbi, or we endure suffering for the sake of then they and we demonstrate our purpose in life. And we've looked at five basic purposes in life when believers endure suffering for the sake of Christ. And we understand that our five purposes in life are not to live for ourselves, but according to the will of God and for his glory. Now, I'm not going to be able to say all I want to about righteous living, so I think we'll probably pick it up a little bit next week. But Roman numeral eight, righteous living. James 5.8 says, be patient and stand firm because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, James, Peter, and uh, Paul all believed that Jesus was going to arrive any day. And the Apostle Paul also believed that it was important to show patience and humility and courage because of the nearness of Jesus's return. Yes, it is now even more so for us been a really long time since Jesus was here after his first arrival. But God is on Kairos time. We've talked about it before. We refer to it as God's time. And that occurs whenever he decides to interrupt directly into our lives without the normal moment-by-moment process in which we live that we call Kronos time, which is short for chronological or sequential time. We may not think about the Lord's time every day, but when we do, it reminds us to live daily with purpose, depending on God's grace, and our blessed hope is the bodily return of Jesus, and throughout our history, it has given believers the patience and humility and courage to face the hardships of persecution 
or even worse. In fact, here's the story of one of those missionaries who exuded those virtues. There was a time when it was common that missionaries would depart their own country with a change of clothes in a pine box coffin to be used for their own burial because they did not expect to return. In 1853, a 21-year-old medical student left England for China because of his fervent conviction of the impending return of Christ. For the next 51 years, Hudson Taylor preached, taught, set up medical facilities, and established the China Inland Mission, which eventually would plant over 800 missions in China, start 125 schools, and his work would result directly in 18,000 Chinese coming to faith. He would also set up 300 mission bases, which were run by 500 newly converted Chinese throughout 18 provinces. Taylor learned to preach in five varieties of Chinese plus several dialects of Mandarin. His historian, Ruth Tucker, summarizes the theme of Taylor's life like this. No other missionary in the 19th century since the Apostle Paul has had a wider vision and carried out a more systematized plan of evangelism, a broad geographical area like Hudson Taylor. Taylor once wrote this to his sister. If I had a thousand pounds, remember he was British, if I had a thousand pounds, China should have it. Not China, but Christ. Can we do too much for him? Can we do enough for such a precious Savior? Well, friends, today Christianity is the fastest growing religion in China, although we'll probably will never know the numbers uh, because so many uh, believers there are not public, but they're secret believers. And I've talked about what's happening today in China, and it continues to fascinate me. The gospel continues to grow in a country where the government policy many times shuts down padlocks churches and arrests leaders to do for them doing what they've been doing. We may possibly face persecution, at least subtle persecution here, and we continue to spiritually mature as it happens. So it begs the question, what am I going to sacrifice for my faith? Am I a secret believer? Would anybody know that I'm a believer? I think about that often. I hope that the history of Hudson Taylor is an inspiration to you as it is to me, because I never want to be complacent. We do not retire, but I hope we refire for the love of the Lord. Three brief comments at the end here, Roman numeral nine. The first one is from Tom Osborne, who was kind of a legendary football coach at uh, uh, Nebraska University. He said this, adversity is a great teacher. You probably learn more from games that you lose than the games you win. When you win, you think to yourself, why change? But if you lose, everything tends to be on the table. The second comment is from Reverend Dick Halverson, who began his career singing in nightclubs in Hollywood and ended up being a pastor in Maryland of one of the most influential churches on the East Coast. He articulated a similar notion about adversity when he said this, I have learned nothing from success. I have only learned from failure. Now, the third comment comes from a man greater than either one of these two men because he was the very first leader of the church and the brother of Jesus. He is James. And James 1, 2 to 3, says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work 
so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Friends, in conclusion, we embrace our failures and we grow from them. That's the purpose. That's what God has made it very clear. Or we wouldn't suffer at all. And if we didn't suffer, we would never grow. We would never mature. Our suffering can always have a redemptive purpose. So don't waste your suffering. When we are wounded, we have the opportunity to serve someone else by giving a listening ear and showing empathy. And then we will have the joy of being a wounded healer for others for the glory of Jesus. And friends, that is righteous living. Wow, Greg, that's incredibly uh, powerful message today. And uh, that, that Hudson Taylor story is amazing. It is, absolutely. Yeah. And China doesn't even realize that they actually have a background in the faith. Mm, that is so good. As always, I've enjoyed our time together. Thank you so much for your teaching and your friendship, and I look forward to the next time we're together. Me too, Bill. Yep. Thank you so much. Dr. Greg Heddington has been my guest as we have continued our study in First Peter. If you missed any of this, definitely want to go to MyFaithRadio.com. Check out the podcast. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.